everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New Discourses Podcast. This is James Lindsay. We are still slogging through, but we're nearly done slogging through Paulo Freire's 1985 book, The Politics of Education, which was this kind of work that um, his evangelist, Henry Giroux, helped bring to light. It's a collection of essays that Paulo had written between 1970-ish and uh, 1985. It kind of lightly got edited into a book. This book, the point was to actually bring Paulo Freire's work to the mainstream of educational discourse in the North American, but especially United States context in the middle of the 1980s. Uh, Freire had actually dipped into the North American context. He had come to America for the first time in 1967. He was, he did some lectures. He met with some people. He oversaw a kind of radical attempt at uh, education in New York City that was being run by a couple of Catholic priests that he got hooked up with. And um, some of his work came to be known a little bit in 67 and 68. Uh, And then in 69, he actually took a brief lecturing uh, appointment for a little over six months at Harvard to present some of his ideas. And he wrote a few articles for the Harvard Education Review while he was there. Uh, but the reception in the kind of educational domain of Freire's ideas in the 70s, early 70s, was virtually non-existent, extremely low, extremely extremely tepid. Uh, that started to change in the late 1970s and early 1980s after Henry Giroux discovered his work and kind of revitalized it uh, in the American context. And with the publication of this book in 1985, he takes off. Now, I give you that kind of framing to remind you that this is an education book, and in fact, it was a very influential education book, and this chapter is unabashedly religious, which is a strange thing to find in the middle of a book that's dedicated to remaking what turns out to be remaking American education. Now, we, we, we've we already clearly identified that what Freire has actually done is he's Marxified education. We don't have to go over that again. He's applied and described his method, which is basically just repackaged and cleaned up in easier-to-read format from his earlier work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which he published for the first time in English in 1970. Um, When we look at this chapter, though, it's unambiguous that the Marxist theology that he's been describing, the Marxist conception of man and the world, for example, and the belief in being a dialectical being that engages in the uh, unity of subject and object so as to transform the world toward its ideal state that repackages the views of Karl Marx uh, when Karl Marx was writing in the 1840s and writing down his basic religious views before he wrote the Communist Manifesto, before he wrote Capital or spent most of the rest of his life writing and rewriting Capital. Um, We have Paulo Freire... uh, presenting this religious view, but here in chapter 10, he turns explicitly religious, unambiguously religious. Now, the first part of the chapter, that's what we're going to do in this episode, because we're going to split this into two, he stays kind of rooted in education and kind of dips in between the religious situation and the educational situation. It kind of blurs them like that's no, they're not really clearly distinct. This bulk of this chapter, I shouldn't say he splits it into halves. He actually doesn't. It's The bulk of this chapter is explicitly on liberation theology, which is Marxism posing as Catholicism. And 
the role of the churches. So in this book on education that was groundbreaking in secular USA in terms of changing the nature of education, this blatantly religious book up to this point, um, Friday turns his attention to uh, to religion and the role of the churches specifically. So there's a big change in in tone in this chapter, and this is really this is really the chapter that by the time I got to this on the first time I read through this book, I was just my gosh, thinking I have to share this. People need to hear what's really going on here, what this guy really thinks. And so here in chapter ten, which we're going to cover the first part of. In this episode, and we'll cover the bulk of in the next episode, Freddie turns away from education as a nominally secular program and actually starts to uh, examine the role of the churches in parallel to the role of education. Um, importantly, what Freddie is doing in this chapter is framing churches as a means of educating, but in so doing, he's also framing education as a means of imparting a theological view of the world. Um, but I want you to get into your head that the Marxists in the in the vein of Freire, since this guy's work has become prominent, and I think the quote I read in Isaac Gottsman's book is that by 1990, 1992, thereabouts, he says a couple of years after the publication of the 20th anniversary edition of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, so it had come out in 1990, that's the copy I actually have uh, of the book, it came out in 1990, within a couple of years of that, he says that Paulo Freire's work, or Paulo Freire uh, stepped into the position that he's now found in, which is everywhere. And so this is everywhere. But what I want you to understand, and I, I, this, this podcast less, but the next episode especially, I'm going to say it here. If you are religious and care about what's happening in the churches, as I know very many of my listeners do, you have to understand that Paulo Freire just views, and the people following after Freire view the church as a means to an end. It is not the bride of Christ. It is, in fact, a school. I would say that people later down this same critical Marxist track view your church as a media platform, as a media outlet, as a matter of fact, as a means by which a pastor, as like a disc jockey or a talk host, can convince a flock to adopt certain values. And we see this here in Friday. It's very important to understand that Friday is positioning churches like they are a kind of school in this chapter. And in particular, it's a school for teaching values. That's what churches are. They're a special value-driven school. So this brings up a wealth of ideas immediately before we even talk about Friday. We need to talk about the connection to Friday that, that we've actually mentioned a couple of times in this episode or this series of episodes so far, which is that the World Economic Forum gets tied into this, believe it or not. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from the World Economic Forum's 2016 white paper on the role of faith in transforming the world, and it can't be ignored. But I want to point out <clears throat> quickly to remind you that that uh, Friday had a mentor who was known as the Red Bishop, Dom Helder Kamara, who was a communist, a liberation theologian. So he's a communist posing as a Catholic channeling his communist ideas through Catholic dogma and doctrine. This was one of Friday's key mentors. They were both in Recife, Brazil. They worked together somewhat there, not as much as one might, while Paulo was working on his kind of post-colonial ideas that shaped his educational model in the first place. Then Paulo gets 
exiled from Brazil, kicked out in 64, goes to Bolivia, gets kicked out 20-something days later from there, goes to Chile, hooks up with some Marxists, actually gets deep into Marxism. As I said, he eventually in 69 goes to Harvard, stays at Harvard briefly until early 1970, at which point he goes off to Geneva. And in Geneva, he has taken an appointment with the World Council of Churches, which is this ecumenical movement of churches. And it turns out that Dom Helder Camara visited this in 1973 or 4, 4, when Klaus Schwab took the risk of bringing him to Davos for the fourth World Economic Forum meeting to present his communist ideas about poverty and overturning poverty to the World Economic Forum at great risk. It turned out because Dom Hiller Kamara was a communist, it was illegal to have him speak in Switzerland in 1974. And as Klaus Schwab relates the story, there's a video, you can watch it. He, he, he just felt so importantly about this that he was willing to risk it all. Risk the European Management Forum, or whatever he called it at the time, completely by bringing Kamara there, risk alienating all the business leaders to whom Dom Hilda Kamara was going to speak uh, because he's a communist, risk alienating and risk blowing up the whole thing because he thought that Dom Hilda Kamara's communist message was so important. And so he works while he's in Switzerland with the World Council of Churches, some visits and works with Freire, some. And so you end up having this Dom Hiller Kamara being not just a mentor to Klaus Schwab, but also a mentor to Paulo Freire as he's developing the ideas that end up going into this chapter of this book. And then here, like I said, we're going to look at the World Economic Forum's 2016 white paper on the role of faith in transforming the world, um, which came out a few years after. Um, Pastor Rick Warren, the guy from The Purpose Driven Life, went to one of his many meetings in Davos at the World Economic Forum. If you didn't know, he's been there many, many times. He's a close friend of the forum, Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Sellout. Uh, <clears throat> and he says in this meeting, I think in 2008 or nine, being introduced by Tony Blair, many other faith leaders of the world up on the stage with him, that faith works like the third leg of the stool of society. So society's held up by a public sector, by a private sector, and these guys at the World Economic Forum, he says, are really invested in that. But there's a third leg of the stool if you want it to stand up, and that's faith. There's a third leg of the stool, which is faith, and he's like, you guys aren't going to accomplish it without us. And he brags about how many people of faith there are in the world. He says that that number's increasing, not decreasing, especially in parts of Africa, parts of Asia. And so you better include the faith or it's not going to work. But then he also points out that faith is how you teach values. And it's not going to be enough to come in with a public-private partnership. Maybe he doesn't say top-down trying to change the world. But it's not going to work without a values-oriented change as well. In essence, a cultural revolution affected through the churches. This is your purpose-driven life, Rick Warren. Let me just say his name again, Rick Warren, saying that at the World Economic Forum meeting again in like 2008 or 2009, half a decade or a decade or so later in the 2016 uh, white paper, 2016 year being 2016 being a boom year for the World Economic Forum because they thought they were going to get their Hillary Clinton and be able to advance their agenda like how in Australia and Canada and New Zealand where they had their people and in the UK, except for the Brexit thing, they've had a lot of their way. They've been able to just kind of unroll the program. Donald Trump got in their way. 
But in 2015 and 16, they pumped out a ton of stuff that's worth looking back at because they thought they were going to have a clear runway to take off their weirdo globalist plane. So now we're looking in the context that um, Rick Warren has laid out that there's a three-legged stool to society, and as the three legs are the public sector, the private sector, and the faith sector, or we might say the ecclesial sector. And so here's what this, this white paper says about what the role of the churches is. It's titled The Role of, the, uh, uh, the role of Religion. Um, it says the World Economic Forum recognizes that faith plays a dynamic and evolving role in society. Demographic trends suggest the number of faith adherents will increase over the next two decades, while the secular population will decrease. People of faith, therefore, have profound impacts on community mobilizing for both productive and damaging purposes. The power of faith to impact global issues and shape global perspectives is a fundamental reason why the forum consistently engages faith leaders and perspectives in our work. As a part of our efforts to incorporate an understanding of the impact of faith in our analysis of complex global trends and challenges, the forum established a Global Agenda Council on the Role of Faith. Council members comprise the world's foremost experts to provide thought leadership that furthers the faith agenda within forum's activities. Over its most recent two-year term, the council worked to raise awareness about socio-cultural cross-faith and religious religious engagement efforts for the purposes of conflict present prevent, pardon me for the purposes of conflict prevention and societal transformation the council aimed to transform perspectives on faith in government and the private sector specifically in nations experiencing dramatic change okay so remember paulo freire is laying out the role of the church in this chapter the church going forward is going to have to listen to Paulo Freire's ideas. Maybe if, say, the World Economic Forum, which has this tie to Paulo Freire's ideas, has its way because they want to retool religious engagement for the purposes of conflict prevention and societal transformation. I urge you again to realize that that TR word, that transformational or transformative word means communism. It is a Marxist watchword that you've got to be aware of. So here they relate that there's these numbers involved, but beyond numbers, what does the World Economic Forum see in religious faiths? Well, it sees opportunity, the opportunity to reshape values in particular. And that's what Brian Grimm, chair of the Global Agenda Council on the Role of Faith at the World Economic Forum, tells us. He says, from climate change to gender parity, the World Economic Forum has identified critical global systemic challenges that require collaboration across different sectors. Understanding the dynamic role faith has in tackling each is the aim of this set of articles. But why is it important to understand the role of faith? First, to address global and systemic challenges requires not only innovations in policy and practice, but also a commitment to certain values that make the needed policy, economic, and social changes sustainable. So you have to change people's values to, so that the garbage will stick. And values are often rooted in faith, they say, or Brian Grimm says. <clears throat> World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman, Professor Klaus Schwab, speaking to the Global Agenda Council on the role of faith, concluded 
that values cannot be justified by the intellectual process alone, and that faith must be involved. Here, Brian Grimm is paraphrasing, but Klaus Schwab actually said exactly that. It says that values cannot be justified by the intellectual process alone, that faith must be involved. Klaus Schwab. Indeed, faith, including the religious institutions and beliefs that sustain faith, offer a deep spring of values that provide a moral and ethical basis for long-term commitments and actions in supporting and addressing the challenges. So what the what, what these guys at, World Econo- at the World Economic Forum are saying in this 2016 white paper, which goes into a tremendous amount of detail, I strongly encourage people to go read it for themselves. Maybe I'll cover it at some point later. I'm not going to go through the rest of it here or any more of it here. It's a bit tedious, but there's a, a couple of pages where they lay out all of the possible challenges and commitments and benefits and perspectives that faith organizations can take in order to achieve their agenda. Well, what they see is that if they want their stupid agenda that they're using their public-private partnership to affect all their ESG metrics, their sustainable development goals they're tied into, etc., if they want that all to stick, it's not enough for them to apply them. They have It's not even enough to get the youth through education to demand them, as Klaus Schwab wrote in The Great Narrative this year. They also have to change the values of the society itself. And what better way to do that and to prevent people from having a, say, traditional religious resistance to that but then by changing the faith itself to support the values so that people's faith is organized around their view, say, of climate change or virus management or, um, uh, you know, the role of social justice and, and what the proper approach to racial, sex, gender, sexuality issues will be. The World Economic Forum wants to reshape faith itself to teach the values for their sustainable and inclusive and resilient world that they wish to build. Not just education, not just the public sector, not just the private sector, but also the faith sector to change the values that people hold. So their idea is that you think you're going to church, that you think you're getting the word of God spoken to you or delivered to you or taught to you or relayed to you or whatever it is that you believe that church is doing with the word of God with you. But in fact, church has been retooled in the vein of I don't know, the thoughts of Rick Warren and his purpose-driven selling out so that it conveys the values necessary to transform the world. Societal transformation is the goal. Faith has to facilitate that. And it is into this space that I want you, I want you to have that context in your mind because it's into this space that I want to present the ideas of Paulo Freire from some 30 years earlier so that you can see what their contemporary context has become. Chapter 10 of The Politics of Education makes it clear the title is Education, Liberation, and the Church. It's going to be all about the role of religion. And Freire starts out this chapter by saying the churches cannot be neutral, just like education cannot be neutral, just like science can't be neutral, just like um, history can't be neutral. In fact, it has to be, just like we heard in the previous chapter in chapter 9, it has to be a humanizing force. And a humanizing force cannot be neutral, otherwise it sides with dehumanizing forces. And why is this? It's because churches, just like schools, just like institutions like science, kind of an abstract institution, are caught in the great current of the production of history, which is the thing that Marxists claim to have the unique, correct study of. So that is, they're intrinsically a phenomenon that must be understood in Marxist terms. 
Now let me back up the truck a second and just say the first and last part of that so it's clear. The churches are intrinsically a phenomenon that must be understood in Marxist terms. That's what Friday is doing with this chapter. But because it's a book about education, and the sections are all about education, he dips in and out of education quite a lot. Of course, you have to realize that pastors are educators. So this is getting played upon. Seminaries are schools. So that's also being played upon. But he says he begins instead. He says, we begin with an affirmation, though almost a truism. It clearly sets forth our position on the present subject. So even though what he's about to say is basically banal and obvious, it sets out clearly their position. He says, we cannot discuss churches, education, or the role of churches in education other than historically. Pause. Historically in Marxist lingo means analyzed in a Marxist way. Always means that. They believe they have the only true study of history. History is that which is the sum total of the social relations of man as they've unfolded according to the forces and pressures created by the division of labor as it's changed and manifested throughout time. The end of history is when we reach the final point where there is no longer any oppression and and private property has been totally uh, transcended. History begins for the Marxists in the moment of the division of labor, which is the fall of man. The role of the churches in education must be understood historically, which means on Marxist terms. So this is what he said. He says, churches are not abstract entities. So you have the same Marxist flavor that you keep getting to taste as we go through this book. They are institutions involved in history. Therefore, to understand their educational role, we must take into consideration the concrete situation in which they exist. The moment these, take, the moment these statements are taken seriously, he says, we can no longer speak of the neutrality of the churches or the neutrality of education. So he's putting churches and education on a, on, on, a, on a level, first of all. You have to understand that the churches have an educational role. Of course, that role is in terms of values, right? But they're not abstract entities. They are concrete institutions involved in the making of history, so they have to be understood dialectically. They have to be understood in the Marxist fashion. This is what he's telling you. So we fast forward again to 2016, and we see that we have to retool the churches as the third leg of the stool of society per Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, who sold out your church to Davos, by the way. They have to be retooled to communicate the values for societal transformation. They have to transform these values because values aren't uh, just intellectually derived, says Klaus Schwab, but they involve faith. So the faiths have to be co-opted in the way that Freire describes. I want to, I'm going to just say flatly that what Freire is recommending here, whether the World Economic Forum got it from Freire himself or derivatives from Freire, or whether they got it from Dom Helder Camara, which was partly one of Freire's sources, is irrelevant. Because Kamara said these exact same things about the church and being neutral, etc. What they want to do is remake the churches to be a vehicle to remake the values of the people so that they will accept so that the people will accept the World Economic Forum's globalist garbage. And to do that, Friday's telling us we have to analyze the churches as historical objects, and then we have to project forward into history as Marx as Marxists always do, as Marxism always intends to do, we have to project forward into history from that place. And when we project forward into history, we have to look at the churches as an institution that produces the values of the future. 
And that's what the World Economic Forum white paper is about, places where the churches might stagnate and places where the churches might take us forward. Okay. And most of the next episode of this is going to be the role of the church. So we'll revisit some of this there just in case people listen to it as a standalone. But what he's actually saying here is that every non-Marxist interpretation and comprehension of the church is necessarily wrong. It's naive at best, and it's bourgeois overall. And this, this is going to be very important. This is how this whole chapter is organized. Freddy splits there's the, there's the correct way, which is the Marxist way, which he'll refer to as the prophetic way. The reflexive way would be a better way to understand it. It speaks what it wishes was to come true in the world, like a prophecy, and then makes it become true, becoming being the nature of uh, the whole Marxist faith through dialectical magic. But then he has the, the two forms of resistance. There's naive and there's intentional. There's naive and shrewd as he splits it up. So Freire splits um, the intrinsically wrong views of church and its role in religion and theology into two categories, naive, which are people who are dumb, and shrewd, which are people who are evil. You've heard me talk repeatedly about the goals of communism always being to drain one of three types of, <clears throat> of, of authority so that the people that it's fighting against are not taken seriously. The first of these is epistemic or intellectual authority. You're naive, you're dumb, you don't know the real nature of history, you don't know the real nature of structural phenomena, you don't think structurally, blah, 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 you're too dumb to have an opinion. Give the Marxists the power. Second is moral authority. You're evil, you're racist, you're sexist, you're transphobe, blah, 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 blah. We see this everywhere all the time now. <clears throat> you have bourgeois values, you have conservative values, you're a fascist, blah, 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 blah. You're somehow evil. You just want to maintain your bourgeois lifestyle. You just want to maintain your intrinsic advantage. That's unfair. You just want to oppress people. You wish trans people didn't exist. Not da 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 da. So you're either dumb or you're evil. So give the power to Marxists who are neither. And then the third thing, which Friday is not including here, is that they try to drain your psychological authority. You're crazy. You don't understand what's going on. You're making things up. You're a conspiracy theorist. Yada yada yada. We know how that goes. So give the power to Marxists. <clears throat> so what Freire is doing is separating that either you're with him or you're one of two kinds of wrong, dumb or evil. He calls them naive and shrewd, uh, rejections of the prophetic church. He says such assertions of neutrality. So if you assert neutrality, you're either dumb or evil is what he's saying. Such assertions of neutrality must be judged as coming either from those who have a totally naive view of the church and history or from those who shrewdly mask a realistic understanding behind a claim of neutrality. So there it is, right? <clears throat> you're either naive, and if you're naive, then you're dumb, because you don't really know what's going on, so you think that the church can just go along on its merry way, or you do know what's going on historically. You do know the Marxist critique of the church, and you shrewdly mask your realistic understanding behind a claim of neutrality. No, I'm just being neutral. I'm not taking sides. <clears throat> Al Mohler. Whether dumb or evil, it's basically the same for Friday as a Marxist, okay? You're either on the wrong side of the history, or sorry, you're, you're automatically on the wrong side of the history, and you're either doing it dumbly, stupidly, naively, or you're doing it shrewdly so that you can keep your advantage. Either way, you're the problem. Now, of course, the iron law of woke projection never misses, right? Marxists are either doing what they're doing naively, or they're doing it shrewdly, like grifters. 
But not only is this true of the Marxists themselves, because the Iron Law Woke projection never, ever misses, but they project this into the world. This is the other side of the Iron Law Woke projection and make it true by necessitating political political activity in the same way that a bellicose nation would necessitate a defense budget. So I'm just listening to an audiobook reading of The Lord of the Rings as I do while I drive around in the car sometimes. And I got to the part near the end. Actually, the ring has already gone in the fire. Everybody's going to be so excited. But we flash back to Minas Tirith before that actually happens, where Lady Eowyn is being an icy bitch in the tower with with uh, steward Prince Faramir, and they're hanging out together, and they're talking. And then she she gets all mad, and she goes and talks to the healer, and he wants she wants to be let go. And he's like, lady, I don't, you know, know all this crap about war. I don't, I, I, there are enough hurts in the world to where I don't understand why we have to have men of swords to multiply them. And she says it takes, it does not take two, but merely one foe to breed a conflict. And so, because it only takes one foe to breed a conflict, you only need one bellicose nation. You only need one aggressor nation to necessitate that you have your own standing army ready for defense. Nation A and Nation B can live at peace and harmony, but if Nation A decides it wants to conquer Nation B and Nation B is weak because it doesn't have an army army because everything's been in harmony, then they're going to get railroaded if Nation A attacks them. So Nation B has to maintain a defense and Nation A has to maintain a defense just in case it goes the other way. We actually had a historical example of this in the United States history. If you don't know, Thomas Jefferson wanted to sell Thomas Jefferson, one of our great founding fathers, blah, blah, blah. Not always all the best ideas. He really hated the national debt. He really wanted to pay it down. Not a bad idea in and of itself, but he was so desperate to do it that he decided in, in the early 1800s, the very first couple of years of the 1800s, that we didn't need a Navy anymore. So he sold it because we were basically at peace. Uh, there's much more peace than there had been. So he sells most of the Navy or almost all of the Navy. And then Napoleon takes over in 1803 during uh, Jefferson's second term. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're hijacking ships and the Barbary pirates are a problem again. And oh no, big problems breaking loose. And we need a Navy. And he has to build one up from scratch. It turns out that having relative peacetime was not a justification to have no Navy. And the second you had one problem crop up, which was Napoleon seizing power, changing the dynamic in Europe, you needed a Navy all of a sudden. Same thing here, though. The Marxists go around provoking political conflict. They say everything's political. Everything's political. The personal is political. The church is political. Education is political. My body is political. Everything is political. And then you have to politicize back in order to fight. And then they point at you and say, you're making everything political. They're doing this right now. They're doing it literally right now in Congress. They're doing it right now. They do the same trick all the time, but they are the provocateurs. So it's not just that they're, that that they are uh, admitting through the Iron Law of Oak projection that they either engage in politicization uh, naively or shrewdly, one or the other, where they, they know what they're doing or they don't. It's also that they project this attitude of, of everything being political into the world and thus necessitate things to become political that aren't political. Baseball should not be political, not in the sense of like grand politics. You can have team politics and whatever else or inter-team politics, but this shouldn't be political. Uh, baseball itself shouldn't be political. Baseball becomes intrinsically political when one side decides to say that baseball is political because it 
carry, say, hidden curriculum values, which is what education does. Education intrinsically carries a concept of the man in the world. It intrinsically teaches a hidden curriculum of the values of, of society. So an education is always political, and therefore they are justified in politicizing education, and therefore education becomes political. This is them being prophetic and bringing into the world what they are claiming. This Marxist theme gets really tedious, doesn't it? So Freire goes on, he says, objectively, nevertheless, both groups, this are naive and shrewd people who are claiming to be neutral, both groups fit into the same ideological perspective. When they insist on the neutrality of the church in relation to history or to political action, they take political stands that inevitably favor the power elites against the masses. Washing's, washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful, not to be neutral. This is true when there's actually an aggressor. The thing is that the conspiracy, conspiracy theorist theory of Marxism believes that there's always an aggressor against them, because they're ultimately Gnostics who feel like they've been flung into the world against their wishes, and that the world itself is the problem, not them. So everything is always an aggressor, aggressor against them. And so anybody who doesn't take their side is siding with oppression of them because they're all vulnerable narcissists at heart. It's so tedious, but it's also their standard thing. Everything is political. Everything creates history, in other words, either consciously or unconsciously. And if it's consciously, it can either be good, which is for Marxism, or it can be bad, which is anything else. And anything that is neutral or believes itself to be neutral is siding with the bad. Now, what Freire is saying is you can claim neutrality in two ways. One of which is naivety, which is you being too dumb to realize what's really going on, in which case you need to be educated. It is my job to educate you. Or shrewdly, in which case you know what's going on. You already know better, but you don't want to know. You're willfully ignorant. Not knowing and not wanting to know is the definition of willful ignorance. And you're pretending to be neutral when, in fact, you're intentionally taking the side of the oppressor and pretending you're not. And, of course, this necessitates becoming political in everything because it's an act of political warfare against you once they declare this. When they say teaching is inherently political, the churches are inherently political. They are, they are instruments of history. They are declaring political war on you. They have declared political war, and then when you say anything in post-op, they say, you're politicizing things. This is just one of their games that they constantly play, that you're always the bad guy and they're always the good guy, and that they're always justified in doing whatever they do because everything's already political anyway, so they get to do it. But remember, we're talking here about the churches and education on, it, on an equal but political life is really sim Freire is a Marxist. It's a political life is very sinister to Freire. Okay, so because the iron law of woke projection again, it never ever misses. You can pretend to help the oppressed while actually uh, affecting a power grab or benefiting yourself, uh, whether you're doing so intentionally or unintentionally. But if you're not on his program or if you're doing his program wrong while thinking you're doing it right, then you are actually part of that problem, and it's so cynical. That's why we called it cynical theories. By the way. Freddy says, alongside this neutral attitude, there are more subtle and more attractive means of serving the interests of the powerful while appearing to favor the oppressed. Here again, we find the naive and the shrewd walking hand in hand. So he's, what he's trying to say is there's no difference. If you don't know better or if you do know better, if you're not going along with him, if you're trying to pretend to be neutral, then you're part of the same problem. 
The naive and the shrewd walk hand in hand, he says. I refer again to what we might call anesthetic or aspirin practices, expressions of a subjective... By the way, he's never mentioned that before in the book, so it has to be in other writings, and he didn't edit out the again here. You didn't miss anything. I refer again to what we might call anesthetic or aspirin practices, expressions of a subjectivist idealism that can only lead to the preservation of the status quo. In the last analysis, the basic presupposition of such action is the illusion that the hearts of men and women can be transformed, while the social structures that make those hearts sick are left intact and unchanged. So um, he's got two things that are happening here. The second of them, the first of them is the opiate of the masses speech by Marx, which we'll look at more closely. But the, the second of them here is that he's saying men are sick because the world is sick. This is what Marx called the inversion of praxis. You do praxis on the world to change society, but society itself reflects back into you and socially conditions you. That's the inversion of praxis. It's praxis coming back into you. That's when I say society makes man, makes society makes man, etc. Man making society is praxis. Society making man back in turn is the inversion of praxis. Okay. And so he's saying that this is, man is sick and you can't just fix man and leave him in a sick society because he'll just be made sick again. You actually have to cure the society and the man together. So you have to transform not just your own ideas, but you have to transform, become a Marxist yourself, but you have to transform society. He says, you know, that if you're naive or shrewd, if you're claiming neutrality, that the basic presupposition that you're operating from is the illusion that the hearts of men and women can be transformed while the social structures that make those hearts sick are left intact and unchanged. And this is exactly, so I said it's two things, but it's one thing. This is exactly what Marx is talking about in his famous remarks about the opiate of the masses. Thus, he calls them anesthetic or aspirin practices here because it would be way too on the nose to call them opiate practices, I guess. If you don't know, I've read some of it on the podcast here before, but that comes from Marx's uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, which he wrote in 1843 and published at the beginning of 1844, so when he's 25 years old. The idea is that you can pretend to help while actually not helping, but instead anesthetizing people and yourself, making yourself go numb, making other people go numb to the real nature of your suffering. And by doing that, you prevent them from overcoming the the sick society that's causing their suffering. You prevent them from wanting structural change by making them comfortable with the suffering that they have in life as it is. And Marx explained how this works in this particular little piece, which carries probably his most famous line, which is that religion is the opiate of the masses. And what he explained is that the opiate of the masses, religion, enables people to deal with their suffering and prefer, therefore prevents them from wanting to take change, uh, which therefore necessitates the criticism of religion to get Marxism off the ground. See, if you're going to have a cult, you have to criticize other belief systems that might stop people from believing your cult. And there is, you know, rather a lot that I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want to read most of this first page of this critique where he deals with the thing. I won't go into as much detail as I have in the past and say the Theology of Marxism essay or uh, podcast. But he says, he starts off with, for Germany, the criticism of religion has been essentially completed. Remember, this is him writing this in the end of 1843, published in February, not January, sorry, of 1844. 
The criticism of religion has been essentially completed in Germany, and the criticism of religion is the prerequisite of all criticism. So Marx is saying you can't even do criticism of society till you get religion out of the way. It's the prerequisite. He says the reason is the profane error, uh, the profane existence of error is compromised as soon as its heavenly um, speech for the altars and hearths has been refuted. Man who has been found only in the ref only sorry man who has found only the reflection of himself in the fantastic reality of heaven. Fantastic doesn't mean great, by the way. It means fantasy. Man who has found only the reflection of himself in the fantastic reality of heaven, where he sought a superman, that means God, will no longer feel disposed to find the mere appearance of himself, the non-man, unmunch, where he seeks and must seek his true reality. So if you believe in God and you believe in heaven, you believe in the eternal afterlife, etc., what Marx is saying is you won't look into yourself for the true causes of your life. You'll put them on God. You'll give them up to God. You'll give your stress up to God. You won't believe that it's a structural reality you have power to change. He says the foundation of irreligious criticism is man makes religion. Religion does not make man. Religion, he says, is indeed the self-consciousness and self-esteem of man. This is what religion is. It is the self-consciousness and self-esteem of man who has either not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself again. Shrewd or naive. But man is no abstract thing. Abstract being, I'm sorry, squatting outside the world. Man is the world of man, state and society. Man is the world of man. The world of man is in italics. You know it's one idea. Man and the world of man, state and society, are the same thing. Because praxis creates state and society, and inversion of praxis creates man. This state and this society produce religion, which is an inverted consciousness of the world because they are in an inverted world. Religion is the general theory. So the inverter is inverting to say that the other thing is an inversion because the iron law of oak projection never misses. Religion is the general theory of this world. It's encyclopedic compendium. It's logic in popular form. It's spiritual point to honor. It's enthusiasm. It's moral sanction. It's solemn compliment. And it's universal basis of consolation and justification. It is the fantastic realization, again, fantasy-based, realization of the human essence, since the human essence has not acquired any true reality. Okay, so let me read that part again. Religion is the fantastic realization of the human essence. And he says since, but we're going to use a different phrase, only because. Religion is the fantastic realization of the human essence only because the human essence has not acquired any true reality. In other words, man hasn't understood himself properly, so you need religion. The struggle against religion is therefore indirectly the struggle against uh, that world whose spiritual aroma is religion. Religious suffering, you see, he says, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. So when you suffer religiously, you suffer, you experience, it's the expression of real suffering, but it's also a protest against real suffering. It's not actually real suffering. Religion, he says, is the sigh of the oppressed creature. This kind of res res resigned, like, ah, it's just how it is. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. 
Remember, opium doesn't make you not feel pain. It dulls the pain, but it makes you not care that you are in pain. So what he's saying is that religion, you are suffering, and it makes you not care that you're suffering, and it makes you not want to find out why you're suffering and end the fact that you're suffering. In fact, he literally, that's his exact intention. I'm not reading that into it. He says the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. See, religion pretends that it gives you the illusion of happiness, but if you get rid of that, then you are now going to have to demand happiness on real terms. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition, in other words, to give up their religion, is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusion. So if you get their religion out of the way, which opiates them, which numbs them, then you're telling them it's up to you. You need that you you have a, a condition that requires illusions because your life sucks. But if if but you could give those up, and he says to call on somebody to give up the illusion of religion will cause them to want to give up the condition of their life, the misery, the suffering that makes them require an illusion like religion. The criticism of religion, he says, is therefore an embryo. The criticism of that veil of tears, of which. Religion is the halo. That veil of tears is the suffering of the world. Religion is the halo that makes it bearable. So giving up religion or criticizing religion is the place from which you gain the ability, the embryo of being able to criticize the world of suffering and oppression. Criticism, he says, has plucked the imaginary flowers on the chain, not in order that man shall continue to bear that chain without fantasy or consolation, but so he so that he shall throw off the chain and pluck the living flower. The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality like a man who has discarded his illusions and regained his senses, so that the opium wore off, so that he will move around himself as his own true son. Religion is only the illusory sun, which revolves around man as long as he does not revolve around himself. Man is his own god. It is therefore the task of history. Once the other world of truth has vanished, that means once you've gotten rid of religion, to establish the truth of this world. It is the immediate task of philosophy, which is in the service of history, to, because the idea is, he's still a bit Hegelian here, the ideas lead to uh, the creation of history. It is the immediate task of philosophy, which is in the service of history, to unmask self-estrangement in its unholy forms. That's religion, by the way. Once the holy form of human self-estrangement has been unmasked. Sorry, self-estrangement in its unholy forms. That's that's reality, not religion. I've got that backwards. Self-estrangement in its unholy forms is the oppression and suffering of the world. Once the holy form of human self-estrangement, in other words, religion, has been unmasked as a creation of man. Thus, the criticism of heaven turns into the criticism of earth, the criticism of religion into the criticism of law, and the criticism of theology into the criticism of politics. So politics becomes your theology. How about that? So this is what Marx said. That's the full context around the opiate of the masses. And that's what actually Friday's kind of referring to here with these anesthetic and aspirin practices, expressions of a subjectivist idealism that can only lead to the, pres the preservation of the status quo, that in the last analysis rely on the basic presupposition 
that uh, of, that is an illusion that the hearts of men and women can be transformed while the social structures that make those hearts sick are left intact and unchanged. The illusion, he says, that suggests it is possible by means of sermons, humanitarian works, and the encouragement of otherworldly values, religion, to change men's consciousness and thereby transform the world exists only in those we term naive or moralistic, as Niebuhr would have said. The shrewd are well aware that such an action can slow down the basic process of radical change in social structures. This radical change is a precondition of the awakening of consciousness, and the process is neither automatic nor mechanical. In other words, it's going to have to be intentional. So, the illusion suggests that you can come in and give sermons, humanitarian work, you can encourage otherworldly values that might change men's consciousness and therefore transform the world. And that only exists in the naive mind, the moralistic mind. What's he talking about? Well, if we're talking about Christianity, he's talking about preaching the gospel and having somebody be reborn as a Christian. And if the people are reborn as the Christian, then they'll bring Christianity in the world and remake it as Christ indicated. <coughs> That's not going to fly. That's naivety for the church. That's what Freddie's saying here. It has to impart the right values for a radical change. The radical change is the preconditioning for the awakening of consciousness, which is going to have to be intentional. So these two ideas, naive and shrewd, are not total moral equivalents, but they are in the practical analysis. They actually are the same thing. And Freddy absolutely rips the shrewd apart. They, you know, obviously they're betraying people. They know better, but they don't act like they know better. <clears throat> So he also wants to address them while pointing out how the naive might be able to be awakened. He says, although objectively both groups are equally ineffectual in producing liberation or the real humanization of human beings, there is still a basic difference between them which should be underlined. Both are caught up in the ideology of the ruling social class, but the shrewd consciously accept this ideology as their own. The naive in the first instance, unconscious of their true position, can through their action come to take the ideology of domination for their own, and in the process, move from naivety to shrewdness. Meaning they can still be uh, selfish bastards, but they at least have moved into knowing the real conditions of history. Or they can also come to renounce the idealistic illusions altogether, forsaking their uncritical adherence to the ruling class. In other words, they can be conscientized. So this is ultimately what Freud is banging on about, about the role of the churches. Some people are evil and lost, but others can be saved by being awakened through conscientization, and they can remake the role of the church, not to give sermons, not to preach the gospel, to awaken people to, what did he call it? <laughs> Cute uh, hiding in the language, the encouragement of otherworldly values. Uh, not sermons, humanitarian works, or the encouragement of otherworldly values. That's naive stuff. Some people uh, uh, are, are, are naive and think that that's going to work, but that's not going to work. They have to be conscientized. They have to take actual action. They have to be reborn on the side of the oppressed. They have to take on the liberatory work through the church. This is how he's going to try to set up the vision of the correct church, the prophetic church, and to criticize both I keep saying church because he's talking about the church, but it's both church leaders, so pastors, etc., and educators who are trying to do their 
their teaching or their preaching or their message delivery, whichever thing you want to want to frame, uh, without having the conscientization that is the denunciation of the oppressive world and thus the pregnant enunciation and embryo of the new world. So what that looks like requires and means is the point of this part of this chapter, or really this entire chapter as he gets into the later part. He says, in committing themselves to the oppressed, they begin a new period of apprenticeship. Okay? So whether you're an educator or whether you're working in the churches, by committing yourself to the oppressed, you begin a new period of apprenticeship. That's what he says. This is not, however, to say that their commitment to the oppressed is thereby finally sealed. It will be severely tested during the course of this new apprenticeship when confronted in a more serious and profound way than ever before with the hazardous nature of existence. To pass such a test is not easy. Now, what's he talking about here? I'm not kidding. I'm just going to cut all the bull. He's saying that if you become a communist <laughs> in church, that people are going to be pissed off at you. That's what he's saying. He says that you begin a new period of apprenticeship with the oppressed where you have to basically kill yourself as an elite and be awakened on the side of the oppressed. That's going to be hard enough. But even if you do that, your commitment isn't sealed. You are not fine. You, you are not, <laughs> you have not achieved justification. So you're going to be severely tested once you decide to be a communist because people are going to be pissed off at you because you've sold out your religion, Rick Warren. And that's not easy. See, because if you can frame it out that it's not going to be this easy test that you have to pass, then you're going to get people to stay more committed to it. This is a basic psychological trick. So Freddie's going to suggest now what that looks like, what this new apprenticeship is going to bring to you. And this is one of the most shocking passages in the book. I want to kind of make sure you understand the context before I read this, what this new apprenticeship in conscientization and Marxism is going to require and I want to make sure you understand fully two things. Number one, he's talking about remaking the role of the church. And number two, he's talking about remaking the role of education. This is in an education book. And he's saying how the churches have to be, or people who are going to work within either education or the church have to be remade in order to do it right. If you don't do this, you don't do it right. And remember, he hinted at this in chapter eight for educators specifically. So we know that this is what he means for educators. And he's saying it again here for the church and much more explicit religious language. What he says is that this new apprenticeship and conscientization requires ideological death and rebirth, a full-blown religious conversion at the deepest level to be on the side of the oppressed. He says, to quote, this new apprenticeship will violently break down the elitist concept of existence they had absorbed while being ideologized. The sine qua non, the highest expression, the apprenticeship demands is that, first of all, they really experience their own Easter. That they die as elitists so as to be resurrected on the side of the oppressed. That they be born again with the beings who were not allowed to be. Such a process implies a renunciation of myths that are dear to them. All right, so before we go to the myths, that they die as elitists so as to be resurrected on the side of the oppressed. They experience their own Easter. That they are born again with the beings who are not allowed to be. Now, given everything going on in the news, I'm put in mind right now of the constant wailing of the uh, kind of trans activists who say that... Uh, if you don't agree with everything that they say as the oppressed, if you don't 
side with them as perfect allies, then you don't want them to exist. And here's how he phrases it. They be born again with the beings who are not allowed to be. The oppressed are the beings who are not allowed to be because they're not allowed to be makers of history, which is man's true, uh, true nature according to the religion of Marxism. And so you have to die and be reborn on the side of the oppressed. They have to be born again, he says, with the beings who are not allowed to be. And I need you to understand that applies in general to the oppressed, but also specifically when you hear, say, trans activists or fat activists or disabled activists, as we had in a recent podcast here, uh, say that you don't want them to be. If you recall, that was a podcast literally about incest and saying that if you are against incest, you are a latent eugenicist because you want there to be fewer disabled, deformed, and R-worded people, as I phrased it, born into the world, people who are not allowed to be. You have to be reborn, he says, born again, specifically, with the beings who are not allowed to be. So you need to understand that that's part of the context of this. This is why that mentality is so pervasive. What it means to be an ally is to die and be reborn, to really experience. First of all, what it demands is that they really experience their own Easter, that they die as elitists so as to be resurrected on the side of the oppressed, that they be born again with the beings who are not allowed to be. And such a process implies a renunciation of myths that are dear to them, the myth of their own superiority, of the purity of their soul, of their virtues, their wisdom, the myth that they save the poor, the myth of the neutrality of the church, of theology, education, science, technology, so in case you thought he was just talking about the church, no, no, no. You have to die to the myth of the neutrality of the church, of theology, of education, science, and technology. You have to die to the myth of your own impartiality. From these myths that you have to die from, from these grow the other myths, which you're also going to have to die to. The myth of the inferiority of other people, of their spiritual and physical impurity, and of the absolute ignorance of the oppressed. That, Freire is saying, is how you believe the oppressed are, that they are inferior, that they have physical and spiritual impurity, and that they are absolutely ignorant unless you die and be reborn on their side. This Easter, he says, which results in the changing of consciousness, see, the Easter is conscientization. Rebirth, death and rebirth, is conscientization. He says, must be ex existentially experienced. The real Easter is not com commemorative rhetoric. That's what you have at church, by the way. It is praxis. It is historical involvement. So it's activism. The old Easter of rhetoric is dead with no hope of resurrection, Friday says. That's what you celebrate on Easter. He is risen. Old Easter of rhetoric is dead, with no hope of resurrection. It is only, he says, in the authenticity of historical praxis that Easter becomes the death that makes life possible. Christ's death means nothing unless you engage in the authenticity of historical praxis. That's what he's saying. It is only in the authenticity of historical praxis, by dying and being reborn on the side of the oppressed and taking up activism on behalf of that belief, it is 
only in the authenticity of historical praxis that Easter becomes the death that makes life possible. But the bourgeois worldview, basically, before I get into that, that's the inversion of John 3.16, by the way. That's the inversion of John 3.16. But the bourgeois worldview, basically necrophiliac, death-loving, and therefore static, is unable to accept the supremely biophiliac, life-living, life-loving, sorry, experience of Easter. The bourgeois mentality, which is far more than just a convenient abstraction, kills the profound historical dynamism of Easter and turns it into no more than a date on the calendar. Wow. So this is what Friday thinks is required to conscientize. You have to die and be reborn as a Marxist. He's literally co-opting Easter, not just what Easter is as a holiday, like some kind of syncretic thing. He's co-opting Easter in the concept of Easter. He's he's stealing the meaning of Easter and changing the meaning of Easter. Changing the meaning of Easter to becoming a Marxist. He's dragging the meaning of the central Christian phenomenon into the same Marxist web, calling Easter and the churches mere commemorative rhetoric that has no hope of resurrection. It's dead. This is liberation theology. And it's also how you transform a church into a delivery system for the new values like the World Economic Forum says are the crucial role religions will play in transforming the world. He says, going on, the lust to possess, the sign of the necrophiliac worldview, rejects the deeper meaning of resurrection. Why should I be interested in rebirth if I hold in my hands as objects to be possessed the torn body and the soul of the oppressed. This is some profound stuff here that he's saying. There's some kind of deep, unbelievable stuff that Freire is framing out what it means to be on the side of the oppressed. In other words, as a Marxist. You have to die and be reborn. Now, as it turns out, this appears somewhere else. I want to read to you a couple paragraphs or so from Robert J. Lifton's Admirable book, why can't I say words? Admirable book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, which is about, he calls it, the subtitle is a study of brainwashing in China. So this is a study of people who were imprisoned in Maoist thought reform prisons in the 1950s, who went through a few years of this and then got out, got exiled, got released from prison and exiled from China, went to Hong Kong and That's where Robert J. Lifton was living at the time in order to be able to intercept and interview these people about what they were doing in these Chinese thought reform prisons. Now, the term thought reform that Robert J. Lifton uses is his translation of the Chinese or the Mandarin, uh, Xinao. Xinao means wash brain in Chinese. So brainwashing, literally. The Chinese, it's not a term that people like applied to it. That's what the Chinese called it themselves. The process was Xinao, brainwashing. And... The way that he describes this, he spends a few chapters to frame this up. He spends a few chapters describing the brainwashing experience in thought reform prisons of a couple of people. One is a doctor, Dr. Vincent, um, Charles Vincent or something. I'd have to look to see his first name. And then Father Luca, a priest, a a Catholic priest. And so this is how he explains this. This is on on, on the copy of the book I have on page 66. He, he, He 
summarizes a couple other stories. And then what he does is he says, all right, let's look at the general trends. He actually interviewed, you know, some 30 or so Westerners who got out of these Chinese prisons, 20 something of them, I think. And he summarizes the general psychological trends in like a 12 part, a 12 step or 13 step or something like that program of how they did thought reform. But I wanted you to give you that picture. He says, both Dr. Vincent and Father Luca took part in an agonizing drama of death and rebirth. In each case, it was made clear that the reactionary spy, that's in quotes, the quote reactionary spy, because what's going on in the the Chinese prisons, let me give you a little more context, is that you get arrested, you've been accused of some crimes, they don't really tell you what your crimes are, and then they put you through a process of alternating struggle sessions and study sessions and interrogation sessions where you're supposed to eventually confess to your crimes in the end and write a full-blown confession that you believe and accept, etc., the framing of all of this, and it's going to sound very familiar to education now, is that you've been accused of your crimes, and the reason you don't know what your crimes are is because you don't know how to recognize them. And so the goal is to teach you to recognize your crimes, but the crimes are only recognizable from what they call the people's standpoint. So the goal is actually to get you into the people's standpoint, um, which would be the Runmin Li Chang if I kind of got my Mandarin correctly, correct there, Renmin Li Chung, the people's standpoint. Okay. And so the, the process is that in your cell, at first you're put through something called struggle, which is literally dojang in Chinese, or pipan is another name for it, which means something like critical study or something like this, uh, or pipan dojang, or putting it kind of an abbreviation, it would just be uh, pido. Uh, so you go through this, struggle sessions are called struggle sessions because the term that the Chinese used for it was struggle, where the people there are supposed to help you want to confess by basically humiliating you and badgering you and abusing you. Um, as you start to be more willing to confess, they put you through study sessions, which is which is uh, shui shi, the study of Marxist doctrine. And the whole point is to get you to be able to recognize your crimes from the people's standpoint, from the Runmin Li Chung. And um, struggle sessions are also, by the way, sometimes we're called denunciation sessions. Uh, you are to denounce your own behavior so that you can learn to recognize it from the people's standpoint. So here's what he writes. Both Dr. Vincent and Father Luca took part in an agonizing drama of death and rebirth, just like Paulo Freire says you have to go through in order to be awakened to the side of the oppressed or the people's standpoint, the oppressed standpoint maybe. In each case, it was made clear that the reactionary spy who entered the prison must perish and that in his place must arise a new man resurrected in the communist mold. Indeed, Dr. Vincent still used the phrase, quote, to die and be reborn, words which he had heard more than once during his imprisonment. Neither of these men had himself initiated the drama, Indeed, at first both had resisted it and tried to remain quite outside of it, but their environment did not permit any sidestepping. They were forced to participate, drawn into the forces around them until they they themselves began to feel the need to confess and to reform. This penetration, and this whole sentence is in italics, this penetration by the psychological force of the environment into the inner emotions of the individual person is perhaps the outstanding psych- psychiatric fact of thought reform. The milieu brings to bear upon the prisoner a series of overwhelming pressures, at the same time allowing only a very limited set of alternatives for adapting to them. Sounds like your DEI workshops, doesn't it? 
or SEL, at school. In the interplay between person and environment, a sequence of steps or operations of combinations of manipulation and response takes place. All of these steps revolve around, sorry, revolve about two policies and two demands, the fluctuation between assault and leniency and the requirements of confession and re-education. The physical and emotional assaults bring about the symbolic death, leniency, and the developing confession are the bridge between death and rebirth. The re-education process, along with the final confession, create the rebirth experience. Death and rebirth, even when symbolic, affect one's entire being, but especially that part related to loyalties and beliefs, to the sense of being a specific person and at the same time being related to and part of groups of other people, in other words, to one's sense of inner identity. In the broadest terms, everything that happened to these prisoners is related to this matter. Since everyone differs from everyone else in his identity, each prisoner experienced thought reform differently, nor did anyone respond completely to all of the steps. At the same time, the experiences had such magnitude that they affected every single single prisoner in some measure, no matter what his background and character. Okay, so this is literally a description of Chinese thought reform prisons, and it says that the goal of it is death and rebirth on the side of the people's standpoint or on the side of the people, which Paulo Freire has expressed as the side of the oppressed, and says that you must die and be reborn as the literal meaning of Easter to the point where he's co-opted the meaning of Easter, such that Easter, as you celebrate it in, say, the Christian tradition, without being reborn as a Marxist, without becoming your own Marxist Christ, with man as God and you yourself become your own Christ, without that, then you're just going through dead commemorative rhetoric. In fact, you're participating in a necrophiliac death cult. Everything in the world is a death cult unless you are reborn this way. So the oppressed and the people who are reborn on their side are like the Christ, which which Friday is uh, saying people who uh, possess, meaning people who have, Marxist, uh, the, the Marxist idea of private property or extracted capital uh, being that, that that's what they reject, right? So he says the lust to possess, right? So sorry, I, I, I skipped ahead a little bit. The lust to possess is the sign of the necrophiliac worldview of the death cult, and it rejects the deeper meaning of, res- of resurrection. Why would I be? We already read that, but I want to re- reiterate where we were. And he says that the oppressed are like the, so I say, not he says, the oppressed are like the Christ, which Friday is saying people who possess reject. You you reject the resurrection if you want to possess. So if you want private property, you reject the resurrection that's being offered. What this is, is a Gnostic remake of the Christian Easter. Okay. And it's a Gnostic attitude. Remember from the previous chapter, his gnosiological attitude that must be adopted toward the oppressed and depression. It confers something the privileged don't think that they need, but the conscious alone meaning Marxists alone understand, and that is a renewing, uh, biophiliac, life-loving position that's in contrast to the necrophiliac, death-loving position of not being reborn on the side of the oppressed. It's a good point. time here to point out, to remind you that Marx thought the fall, the fall of man from Christian belief, you know, the original sin, 
event marks that the fall is located in the division of labor, which estranges man from man. That's the creation of class society. So the original sin in the Marxist religion is to possess anything. Depravity is the want to de- to, to possess anything and or <clears throat> privilege. Privilege is depravity. It's the want to stay privileged, right? And to, to have access to a special standing in society is original sin or to have, have, have to, to create it actually. The original sin is the knowledge that some people are better and some people are worse. That's eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Some people are good and some people are bad. Some people are deserving and other people aren't. And so this divides labor. That's the fall of man. And so depravity is, or privilege, is the, the want to continue to possess. And evil is being willing to accept the division of the classes. The wages of sin are death, according to the faith, and through salvation there is eternal life, so only a spiritual death and rebirth can bring sanctification and eventual salvation. So what Freire is trying to lay out is a liberation theology perspective on this. Now imagine that you are somebody that's going along with the flow in your churches, Southern Baptist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, whatever, and they're kind of introducing some of these critical ideas. It's a little bit of liberation theology sprinkled in. It's a useful analytical tool critical race theory, intersectionality. We have to think about these things this way. We have to let a little bit of it in. We have to consider it. This is what you're bringing in. This outright heresy, this outright Marxist heresy, this outright redefinition of the meaning of the central ideas of the faith. Rick Warren. What Friday says is, I can only experience rebirth at the side of the oppressed by being born again with them in the process of liberation. In other words, you have to join the oppressed, like he said in the chapter seven, like Che Guevara, and work with them, together with them, in love with them, being born again with them in the process of liberation. In other words, you have to help them realize, you have to help them conscientize and become activists to overthrow society, and you have to be born again with them in that process. I cannot turn such a rebirth, he says, into a means of owning the world, since it is essentially a means of transforming the world. So anything in the church that doesn't turn into liberation theology is trying to uphold the idea of owning blah, 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 which is living in the necrophiliac side, the bad side. Karl Marx and the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts indicates that true communism is actually the total transcendence of private property, which ends all estrangement of man to his world, of the man to society, of man to man, uh, one to another, and man to himself, the four domains in which Marx sees estrangement and this alienation playing out. So rebirth in this sense cannot become some other means of possession because it has to imply transcendence of possession entirely. It must transcend private property or the division of man, one man from another. It must transcend the estrangement of man through structural power altogether, exactly like the way Christ transcends death. And just for kind of completeness, let me rip up here from the EPM, from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscript, where Marx, one of the places where Marx describes that. He says, communism, just so you can hear his actual words, communism as the positive transcendence of private property, as human self-estrangement. So just to be clear, private property 
is human self-estrangement. So communism as the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement, and therefore as the real appropriation of the human essence by and for man. Communism, therefore, as the complete return of man to himself as a social, that is, human being. A return accomplished consciously, see, it can't be mechanical, it's got to be intentional, a return accomplished consciously in embracing the entire wealth of previous development. This communism, as fully developed naturalism, equals humanism. And as a fully developed humanism, equals naturalism. It is the genuine resolution of the conflict between man and nature, and between man and man. The true resolution of the strife between existence and essence, between objectification and self-confirmation, between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species. Communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be this solution. So then he goes on after this. We won't get into it, though. He says, just the beginning, the entire movement of history, just as communism's actual act of genesis, the birth act of its empirical existence, is therefore, for its thinking consciousness, the comprehended and known process of its own becoming. So, communism is when man knows he is becoming the perfected man that makes a perfected society, so that the praxis and inversion of praxis change nothing. Both are perfect, and as he said, perfectly social, i.e. socialist. That's when they are truly human, because for Marx, the true nature of being human is to be perfectly socialist, which is when private property is actually not just disliked, but fully transcended. The concept doesn't mean anything any longer, and you will own nothing, and you will be happy. And for Friday, he says, if those who were once naive continue in their new apprenticeship, they will come to understand that consciousness is not changed by lessons, lectures, and eloquent sermons, but by the action of human beings on the world. Consciousness does not arbitrarily create reality as they thought in their old naive days of subjectivist idealism. So in other words, activism is church. Consciousness makes it authentic. You must do the work through your faith to transform the social structures or you aren't conscious, and thus you're either naive or shrewd. He then goes on into a new section called conscientization. Conscientization in the middle of this church thing where he explains what he's actually about here. He says, They will also discover to what extent their idealism has confused any number of concepts. For example, conscientization, which is so badly understood, when they tried to offer magic remedies for healing the hearts of mankind without changing the social structures, were equally idealistic when they claimed that the conscientization was simply, or similarly magic, a magic, <clears throat> his wording is a little off, sorry, when they claimed that conscientization was a similarly magic means of reconciling the irreconcilable. Conscientization appeared to them then as a sort of third way that would allow them to escape miraculously from the problems of class conflict, creating through their mutual understanding a world of peace and harmony between oppressor and oppressed. When both were conscientized, there would be neither oppressor nor oppressed for all would love each other as brothers, and differences would be resolved through roundtable discussions over or over a good whiskey. This is the naive view that they can just kind of, you know, 
conscientize people and we'll wake people up and then we're all we'll wake up the rich we'll wake up the poor and everybody's going to get along we'll wake up the whites we'll wake up blacks and everybody's going to get along and we'll have any conflict resolved through roundtable discussion over a good whiskey um basically he says this idealistic vision which works only for the oppressor is exactly the position that Niebuhr vehemently condemned as moralistic, whether it be found in the religious or the secular domain. Such mythologizing of conscientization, be it in Latin America or elsewhere, be it at the hands of the shrewd or the naive, constitutes an obstacle rather than an aid to the liberation process. So then he goes into a kind of a long stretch of technical stuff that I'm going to skip, but what it basically boils down to is that he's talking about how even the conscientization process itself can be mystified and mythologized for people who haven't fully achieved true consciousness. So if you haven't been conscientized yourself, you'll create a, myth a mythological version or a mystified version, or a uh, I said mythological already, version uh, of conscientization that doesn't conscientize. It's this pretend thing like, well, well, we'll just wake people up and then we'll be all his brothers. That's your third way people. Let's see if you can think of any in the church, by the way. This is kind of funny, in my opinion, because the whole program that they have is mystification and mythology, of course, the whole Marxist thing that declares itself uniquely to not be that. But it's also funny because when you look at the third way people who swear up and down right now that they're against, say, critical race theory and so on, and that they, they think they're a terrible idea, that that's exactly what Freddy is calling out. So you know that down the road, since they're being called out, that they're actually um, going to bend back the other direction. So to escape this whole thing, though, Friday insisted action isn't enough without reflection, of course. So he goes into the whole thing of how conscientization has to be done truly, which means it has to be done in praxis, which means it has to be done through activism, which your church has to become activist. You have to become activist within it, and your faith has to be tooled reflectively to reflect the theory and the practice and put it into action so that you can be conscientized truly rather than in some mystified, idealistic version. Um, theory and practice must be brought together. That's the fundamental fundamental thing of the dialectical religion. Theory and practice are separate and have to be brought together. So therefore you have to act, you have to reflect on your action through theory, then you have to act again, then you have to reflect on your action through theory again, blah, 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 blah. The theory becomes the, the mirror or the speculum in which you reflect upon the impacts of your practice so that you can refine the theory and refine your, your derived practice and do it again and again and again. That's the dialectic. Hence, says Freire, Friday, 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 I'm practicing the new term, the new pronunciation, the correct pronunciation, it's not new. Hence, says Friday, conscientization, whether or not associated with literacy training, must be a critical attempt to reveal reality, not just alienating small talk. It must, that is, be related to political involvement. We're talking about your church. There is no conscientization if the result is not the conscious action of the oppressed as, the exploited, as an exploited social class struggling for liberation. We're also talking about your school or your kid's school. What is more, no one conscientizes anyone else. The educator and the people together conscientize themselves. See, this isn't, this isn't the Calvinist doctrine that nobody saves anybody, that God saves people. No, it's been retooled. No one conscientizes people. Nobody leads to anybody else's rebirth, death and rebirth to the resurrection, to the Easter. Nobody does that. Nobody leads anybody to be born again. They do it to each other together, collectively. The educator and the people conscientize themselves together, thanks to the dialectical movement that relates critical reflection on past action to the continuing struggle. 
So in other words, this means the reflective activism is necessary to achieve results and the proof of consciousness, right? So this is how you actually get to your justification and later sanctification, then salvation. It's only real if it inspired activism that advanced Marxism, and this sets him up to discuss education for liberation through the next section. But this is, again, just to remind you, this is all very reminiscent. I didn't read Robert J. Lifton in the Thought Reform Prisons for no reason. It's very reminiscent of this. The Maoist prisons were doing the same thing in a different way, in a different context. You have to repeatedly struggle Dojang, and you have to study uh, Shui Shui. Uh, no, Shui Shi. Sorry, my Chinese is not that great. Uh, you have to complete, repeatedly struggle to, to want to confess, to, to, to feel sincere in your confession. And you have to study to understand the true Marxist thought so that you can recognize your crimes from the people's standpoint. The Renmi Li Chong. So you confess in the end to the accusations that were made or that were made up or that you made up along the way, all these made up crimes, until you learn to identify with the crimes which only makes sense from the so-called people standpoint, from within the cult view. Maybe you get accused of being a racist or maybe of having an unconscious bias and you get put through a program where in the end you're going to confess to all the racism you didn't realize that you were actually involved in through a process of public struggle, doing the work of doing the reading, going to the workshops, working through the seminar, blah, blah, blah. There's your work or there's your struggle. There's your, um, there's your struggle and there's your study. And in the end, you're being interrogated by, say, HR or something, and you're to confess to all the racism. So in the end, you confess to your accusations of made-up crimes, and then they tell you that it lacks sufficient sincerity and that you have to do more work. Sounds like Robin D'Angelo exactly. And you have to continue to clarify and continue to clarify until you can express it in terms of the people's standpoint and come across that you actually believe the people's standpoint. You have to adopt the critical race theory or the queer theory position and explain how you were transphobic or racist or whatever else until you genuinely confess it. This is the way to understand pedagogy of the oppressed and education for liberation and liberation theology as the application of communist brainwashing techniques in the educational and religious and corporate workplace training seminar settings. These are your schools, your churches, your workplaces, your jobs, your military. This is the means being used to get to the neo-communist World Economic Forum's desired ends by transmitting values. Friday turns now to a section we're going to cut in half to end this episode, and we'll pick up with it in the next one, which is called Education for Liberation. So we've talked all this stuff about a churches and apprenticeship and kind of blurred the lines, and now he's going to talk specifically about education for a couple paragraphs, and then just flips, like, in one line to the churches and stays there. And the rest of the chapter is church, 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 and he kind of gives a nod to education. And he's already kind of developed, of course, education for liberation throughout the whole book. But in this section, what he does is that he insists that education for liberation has to go beyond method and has to rethink its relationship to the system entirely. You might think that this is the opposite of what we see with public schools, where they're totally focused on methodology right now. But it is actually indicative of, say, the, the WISC model, as they call it, WISC. You need to start realizing WISC is a big thing in education, and it's a bad thing in education. WISC is an acronym, W-S-C-C, okay? And it's a shift to community schools. So let me give you two more buzzwords you need to be paying attention to in education. WISC. W-S-C-C, which stands for Whole School, 
whole child, whole community. Okay. WISC to set up community schools, whole school, whole child, whole community. Everything is supposed to create a reflexive social emotional learning environment where the child is thought reformed from every angle possible, which is exactly if we read further down in Lifton, the same educational society setup that Mao was establishing to thought reform all of China. The goal is to do this through community schools that can increase the thought reform by narrowing the context to the specific and local grassroots levels while committing public school dollar or public dollars to achieving it, say through the school choice trap. The other thing, though, that the whole school, or sorry, yeah, whole school, whole child, whole community model, the WISC model is supposed to do is that the school is going to become a one-stop community shop. Your kid can go to the doctor at school, maybe without your permission. The kid can get medicines prescribed. The kid can get socially transitioned. The kid can get emotional support, psychological support, educational resources, lunches, maybe breakfasts and dinners too. The whole idea is for the the entire community in which the children are raised is going to be centered in the school, and the school is going to become the provider of basically everything in conjunction with the rest of the community around it to reshape the whole child in every single possible dimension, all the emotional and social competencies that they care about in the social-emotional learning domain. But we go back to Friday, talking about education for liberation. He says another dimension in this section, he says another dimension of the mythologizing of conscientization, whether by the shrewd or the naive, so that, remember, they're, they're the ones who pretend that they're neutral, so they mythologize what it means to become conscious into something fake that won't do it. So whether by the shrewd or naive, another dimension of the mythologizing of conscientization is their attempt to convert the well-known educator for liberation into a purely methodological problem, considering methods as something purely neutral. So it's not going to be enough for Friday to engage liberatory practice. It's going to have to be liberatory praxis, and it's going to have to be everywhere. It's not just methodology. It's not just a kind of recipe you unfold in the curriculum. It has to be a reflexive, a wholly reflexive environment so that the Marxist and Holy Spirit will be present and move the whole thing to have the rebirth and uh, the death and rebirth of the resurrection on the side of the oppressed. Otherwise, it's just pretending. Thus, it's still neutral, and thus, it's still on the side of evil. Okay, so it's not going to be just, you can't convert liberation into mere methodology. That's not enough. The methods themselves, Friday says, are also not neutral. And he goes on, he says, this removes or pretends to remove all political content from education so that the expression education for liberation no longer means anything. So what he's doing is he's criticizing people who take up his method in a fake way, that they're what the words that that they're using now with ESG, that companies aren't really getting environmentally committed. They're greenwashing. They're not really getting socially committed. They're wokewashing. Klaus Schwab says in the, uh, the great narrative, this year, his book from this year, which is a great reset book too, he says in this book explicitly that woke wa- the, in these words, woke washing and greenwashing isn't going to be acceptable. We're watching the collapse of ESG as a <laughs> in, in kind of real time. See it destroying countries like Sri Lanka. We see it destroying countries like the Netherlands. We see it destroying the heat and electricity environment of countries like Germany, we see ESG collapsing in real time as the fraud that it is, the scam that it is, the destructive communist scam that it is. And what do you also see concurrently? Greta Thunberg saying it's not going to be enough for these companies to greenwash. 
They have to be committed to the actual climate change agenda. It's not going to be enough for the companies to greenwash their policies. They have to be even more committed to the environmental aspect. Same thing with wokewash. That's what Freddie's actually saying here. That's what he's talking about. That's why this taps back into the World Economic Forum thing uh, and, and, and the transmission of values. It's not going to be enough to uh, pretend to do these values. He says it removes or pretends to remove all political content from education. It pretends because you can't remove the political content because all teaching is political, remember. That's the act of political warfare that they're declaring on you and your school. All political content from education so that the expression education for liberation no longer means anything, so that ESG no longer means anything, so that environmental consciousness no longer means anything, so that social justice no longer means anything. They're just faking it. Actually, he says, insofar as this type of education is reduced to methods and techniques by which students and educators look at social reality when they do look at it, only to describe it, this education becomes as domesticating as any other. Education for liberation does not merely free students from blackboards just to offer them projectors. On the contrary, it is concerned as a social praxis with helping to free human beings from the oppression that strangles them in their objective reality. I didn't mean this to turn into a thing about ESG, but oh my God, it's so exactly what they're doing. It's so very clear that Klaus Schwab talking about woke washing and greenwashing had read or read read something similar to or derived from what Friday is arguing here in the role of the church in his book, The Politics of Education, that you can't do it for pretend. You have to commit to the new values all the way or it doesn't count. You must die and be reborn into the new value system or you are on the side of evil. So companies that are greenwashing or wokewashing, they're pretending to be environmentally concerned, they're pretending to be woke, are causing ESG to be hollowed out from all of its meaning. I could reread this entire thing. Listen to this. Let me reread it with ESG. I didn't even think I was going to do this. This removes pretending to do ESG to check off boxes, right? You have an ESG thing, you want your score to be high, so you put in some BS, you fill out the form, you you make a few little changes. It's fake, though. You don't really commit to environmental stuff. You just want to check off the box so you can have a good investment portfolio, portfolio score, right? This removes or pretends to removes all political content from uh, responsible, socially responsible corporate activity or corporate. So what does it call it? Social corporate social responsibility. This removes or pretends to remove all political content from corporate social responsibility so that the expression corporate social responsibility or ESG no longer has any meaning. Actually, insofar as this type of corporate governance is reduced to methods and techniques by which uh, corporate officers and workers uh, look at social reality when they do look at it, only to describe it, this approach to corporate governance becomes as domesticating as any other. ESG does not merely free the world from, let's say, pollution just to offer them uh, paper straws. On the contrary, it is concerned as a social praxis with helping to free human beings from the existential situations that strangle them in their objective reality. It's the exact same idea, the exact same idea, the exact same application. So what Friday is describing as the uh, education for liberation, what it requires here in this very religious chapter of this book, and that's blatant liberation theology, is exactly the program that they're applying to this sustainable development goals and ESG through the World Economic Forum, which is claiming that it has to use the remade church to convey the values necessary to usher a transformation of the world in order to alleviate oppression, to have a more inclusive world, a more sustainable world. All the goals of 20. 
the, the late 20th century Marxism that they've tied to. They repackage what Marx was asking for all the way back in 1844. But narrowing back down to Friday, he's actually saying that education for liberation has to be thought reform. It has to use struggle as the method of helping. It can't fake it. You have to die and be reborn on the side of the oppressed so that you can do the thought reform effectively. You must use struggle as a method of helping, just like in the Chinese prisons, so that people learn to see the world from the standpoint of the oppressed or the people's standpoint, which is to say with Marxist consciousness or in the ESG world within the consciousness of global citizenry and corporate social responsibility. Same, same, same. But it's a church. It's all a religion. It's all a gigantic hijacking of the churches, hijacking of education, hijacking of corporations, hijacking of governments to impress not a state religion, but a supra-state religion, a world religion of environmental, social governance, whatever you want to call it, that it all has various aspects of social responsibility in a Marxist lens for the liberation of humanity from its existential crises, including the existential crisis of racism and oppression and the social score and environmental calamity and the environment score and, uh, you know, whatever else that they're, they're obsessed with, uh, pandemics, um, the, the, the rapidly advancing technology where the rapidly advancing technology might enable people to, um, you know, come up with systems of surveillance and control. They always warn about that synthetic biology, et cetera, all the things that they're actually doing to the world, you know, um, so it is therefore, Friday says, political education, just as political as the education that claims to be neutral, although actually serving the power elite. So if you just woke wash or you just greenwash or you just pretend or you don't actually go through the motion, you are still doing a political education that's in the education on a par, by the way, education for liberation is therefore also a political education. They're all just equally as political. So what you have to do is you have to choose on different terms. It's not you can have political education or not political education. It's every choice is political education in exactly the same way, which is, by the way, a lie. That's the Marxist lie. And so we have to pick one. So you can try to pick the one that claims to be neutral, that woke washes and, and greenwashes and whatever else that's fake, that actually serves the power elite. Or you can pick the one that's liberation, which Iron Law of Oak Rejection never misses, is the one that actually serves the power elite. That's what communism does. Is it serves a power elite. It's a tool. It's a technology for the power elite to level society so that they can step in and run them in a new way. This is important, though. This is the constant justification. They not only get to but have to do their political education because all education is political, not just political, but equally political, which is a lie, by the way. So they have to groom, like in groomer schools with drag queens, because all education, all learning, all raising of your children, especially in religion, is already grooming. They alone have the right to do this, though, because everything's equally political, everything's equally grooming, but they alone are conscious of oppression and therefore doing it in the right direction where everybody else is sustaining the problem. That's the heart of their entire mentality. That is the justification for all of their grift. That is everything that they do to justify and then to re-justify and re-justify. And we caught them. I predicted this on Twitter. I got made fun of and I was right. Groomer schools was blowing up. Groomer was blowing up. Okay, Groomer, which by the way, if you didn't know, I started. What was the first tweet for that? Was blowing up. And I said on Twitter in the midst of the huge Groomer moment, 
in, say, May and maybe early June of this year, I said they will own the term groomer. They will say everything is grooming, that grooming is necessary, and we have to groom the right way, that raising your kids is grooming, that going to church is grooming, but that they're grooming for liberation. And so it's correct. And that's exactly what they did. They have to do it. They always will do it. So what does Friday say, though? I don't want to lose him. Let's go back to him. He says, it is thus a form of education. And we're talking about education for liberation. It is thus a form of education that can only be put into practice systematically when society is radically transformed, which means real liberatory education hasn't been tried yet. And that's not just a joke. It's not like real communism hasn't been tried. Ha. Real, real liberatory education hasn't been tried yet. Ha ha. It's not a joke. It's why their failures don't count as failures, and they always get to demand more of the same. Because it didn't count until it was in the radically transformed society. It only works after they have total power and have transformed society. So, of course, it's going to fail now. And it's everybody else's fault, not theirs, because the society's not transformed. People haven't transcended private property all the way yet. They can only transform society by doing progressively more and more and more of their own as they reveal the contradictions and the pieces until finally, click, it works. And so you have to hand over more power, more and more and more power to them. This is the true conceit of Marxism. Real liberatory education hasn't been tried because it can't be tried until the society has been radically transformed. But the only way we're going to radically transform society is by letting them have the power in radically transforming society. And when it didn't work, it was because people did it fake. They, 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 they were naive. They were shrewd. They were whatever. They greenwashed. They wokewashed. It was fake. So real liberatory education hasn't been tried because it can't even be tried until the society is radically transformed. But by doing it, that's how you make it become. It's a prophetic vision for society, education, church, religion, whatever. That's what he's trying to communicate. So they have to have all the power because he says only the innocent, in scare quotes, only the quote innocent could possibly think that the power elite would encourage a type of education that denounces them even more clearly than do all the contradictions of their power structures. Such naivety also reveals a dangerous underestimation of the capacity and audacity of the elite. <clears throat> There's a letter missing, so I got confused there. Of the capacity and audacity of the elite. Because the iron law of woke projection never misses. He's saying you'd have to be stupid to believe the real thing can be tried without having it have already succeeded because of this conspiracy theory that the power elite wouldn't let anything else happen. You can't possibly have liberatory education, which would unmask their power, even worse than their own contradictions do. You can't have that as long as they have any power. They will always co-opt everything back to their own program. He says, truly liberating education can only be put into practice outside the ordinary system, and even then with great cautiousness by those who overcome their naivety and commit themselves to authentic liberation. So you need a completely new system. Boop, back to the whisk model. Whole school, whole child, whole community. You have to have a whole new model of education. Can't be the public education system. That's already a model of reproduction. That's the whole point of critical pedagogy. Can't be that. Can't be the private school education because that just reproduces the power elite. Huh. You need a whole new model of education. Maybe one that's, you know, I don't know, schooling 4.0. WISC model, community schools, liberatory education, all built off of social and emotional learning. 
You need an entirely new model. Truly liberation, liberating education, he says, can only be put into practice outside the ordinary system, and even then with great cautiousness by those who overcome their naivety and commit themselves to authentic liberation, so it can only work, this is me talking, not him, so it can only work by installing a new system they are in total control of, like WISC. Something that's focused perhaps on something completely new and different, like implementing very high-tech, transformative social-emotional learning on every level in order to bring the new world into existence while they bring the new world into existence at the same time. What do I mean by that? That they are using the education to fill the jobs of the... to, to, to mold students to be in the jobs of the future while they create the economy that's filled with the jobs of the future. So they're building the new world and they're building the education for the new world so that smack they hit at the same time around 2030. By implementing high-tech, transformative social-emotional learning on every level through small community schools to bring the new world into existence and to fill it with people who have a completely new consciousness. This is what their agenda is. ESG creates a new world. Social-emotional learning trains people to fit into the ESG model while equipping them with a social credit score to make sure they behave. And they uh, it trains them to need the ESG model. Um, you can read the great narrative. I've talked about it in a, in a New Discourses bullet. That's literally what Klaus says the point is. That's the New Discourses bullet about the Marxism and the Leninism, the top-down and bottom-up, inside-out program. Okay. Now, I want to talk for about 10 seconds before I get back into that, um, before I get into a, something actually connected to kind of close this out. I want to talk for about 10 seconds about the school choice trap, because that's really what's going on here. How do you get the money to get this new education model off the ground if, I don't know, say 80 to 90 percent of the money, 90 plus percent of the money in education is tied up currently in um, public schools and, say, some other percentage of that money, large chunk of what's left is tied up in elite private schools that aren't about to lose their student body because their purpose is other, which is to train elite and position elite to move into elite universities and elite employment and elite social circles. So if 90 plus, 95% plus of the money in education is tied up already, how are you going to get the money off the ground? How are you going to get this new education model off the ground? Uh Uh-huh. School choice. You're going to give people the absolute choice to take their money out of those failing public schools. Imagine if your goal was to get people to want to leave the public schools en masse, how shitty you would make them, how indoctrinating, how groomer-filled, how nightmare-fuel-horrific, where if that doesn't end them, at least you still have your indoctrination camps. But if it does, and you have this whole situation set up to where you can pass a law, say in Arizona, that pretty airtight in terms of allowing the uh, money to follow the student, even without strings. Lots of the voucher systems use strings, but then there's this other system that doesn't use strings, right? So the, the what is it? Fund students, not systems. It's a cute slogan. It simplifies such a complicated issue in four words, so you know it's deep, right? So what happens? You have, a, I don't know, what we have is what you can't achieve. What's the model that's happening right now? Public-private partnership and through education and religion, right? Or through religion, right? Those are the three stools, public, private, faith. Okay, so what you can't achieve through the public sector, you achieve through the private sector, right? That's everything. How do you censor people? Well, the government in the United States can't censor people, but the tech companies in their pocket can, right? So what you can't achieve through the 
public sector, you achieve through the private sector and vice versa. And But what you can't achieve in either one, the third leg of the stool, is you achieve through faith education. So people are going to run to religious schools. Imagine if the religious schools are teaching retool of faith um, to bring in the same values or the same methods. But the problem is, is, again, so much money in education is tied up in the existing model. Imagine if your goal was to make it really crappy so that people would want to leave it in droves, and then you create the law, the legal frameworks that enable that to happen. And then lo and behold, how convenient on the back of the pandemic trying to solve all of these problems in education, a whole new model of education like the WISC model or 4.0 schools using lots of integrated technology. Uh, so there's a lot less physical infrastructure necessary, a whole new kind of corporate model, maybe in 10 different brands all owned by one parent corporation sweep in to offer a new form of education to everybody that's cheaper than the public schools, it's cheaper than the private schools, it's not woke, at least nominally speaking. It is SEL equipped and will be ESG compliant, at least as it goes down the the, the track, but for the moment it can speak anti-woke. So now you have a whole bunch of schools and they're cheap. They're cheaper than public schools. So in Arizona, for example, you pay your taxes, they give you 90% of your tax dollars back to allow that money to follow the child for educational purposes through an education savings account. Bear with me. So it's no infrastructure WISC model 4.0 school that's largely online but has some physical infrastructure happening, or maybe it's even facilitated through a church if it's a religious school, comes comes into town and it's Maybe it only costs 60% of what the public school costs. So it's way cheaper than the private schools, which are woker than hell, by the way, already. And it's way cheaper than the public school. But the deal is that you actually would get to pocket some of that money because the state in Arizona is giving you 90% of your money back, some of which, if you read the wording of the law, has to be used for education purposes that that are qualified. So now you buy into the new school that's funded by Jeb Bush or the the remaining Koch brother uh, or whatever this corporate model is. And because it's so much cheaper and the, the schools are so bad, lots and lots of people shift over. And all of a sudden you have got the the monetary fuel in the plane to take it off. And the whole new model of education can be brought in whole cloth, equipped with ESG and SE, or equipped with SEL and ESG compliant through a huge corporate monopolistic model where it looks like you have 10 different brands of school companies that you can sign up your kids, but they're all owned by one or two umbrella corps. You would never think that maybe, just maybe, they're trying to set up a corporate monopoly, and that's why there's so damn much money flowing into that lobby, because they're trying to capture trillions of dollars of education money from taxpayers. Would you? No. This is a school choice trap. This is why I'm real skeptical of this, but we're not talking about it today. We're not talking about truly liberating education can be put into practice, can only be put into practice outside the ordinary system, necessitating an entirely new system, says Friday, even then with great cautiousness by those who overcome their naivety and commit themselves to authentic ESG. I mean, liberation. Oh, I mean, oh my God, that's really bad. So, school choice. Think about it real hard before you get too excited. Sometimes doing something because it's something isn't a great idea. Just saying. The only way that their model can work, the one that the World Economic Forum is talking about in its white papers about social-emotional learning and the future of education, it's talking about in its white papers about the role of faith going forward, is by installing an entirely new system that they're in control of that teaches not just ideas but values. Like WISC. Like community schools 
like School 4.0, implementing high-tech transformative social-emotional learning on every level to bring the new world that's sustainable, resilient, and inclusive into existence. Without lingering on that, let me close up by having you consider the creepy inspirational quote that's actually at the heart of the World Economic Forum. A lot of people don't know this about the World Economic Forum, but they have a motivational quote. They read it at their meetings. They make people commit to it. It's published at the start of their 2010 weirdo history book they wrote about themselves, which maybe was written by Klaus Schwab because it talks about how awesome Klaus Schwab is and kind of awkward sentences a lot. It's titled The World Economic Forum, The First 40 Years. This quote is, it turns out, not by Goethe, to whom it's attributed. It's by somebody who translated Goethe's Faust. Uh, I forgot the guy's name now. It was a couple weeks ago. I looked it up. Um, an Irish guy who translated Faust into English, and he wrote this thing, and it has been widely attributed to Goethe ever since. Now, Goethe, by the way, was a very famous epic poet, and he's kind of the Shakespeare of Germany. Um, and he wrote a lot of things, but he most famously wrote Faust. And Faust is this kind of very evil story being retold by Goethe. He didn't invent this story. He was retelling it in his own telling. And it involves, it turns out to be Marx's favorite poem or book, story, whichever one you have. It's a long, it's a book length poem, technically. And it was his favorite one. And the character in it that was Marx's favorite was Mephistopheles, which is the mouth of Satan, uh, who comes in and makes the deal with Faust, selling Faust's soul to the devil in exchange for powers that Faust uses to, to get the girl of his dreams. And it's this whole sordid tale, and you're welcome to go read it. And um, when you, if you go to the Marxist.org uh, glossary and look up truth, it says that so truth is always relative, and it's always a matter of a social formation. Because in the words of Goethe, and they quote Goethe here, but they're actually quoting Mephistopheles, which was Marx's favorite thing to go around quoting. All truth is relative, they say, because everything that exists deserves to perish, and that's Mephistopheles as written by Goethe. Uh, but that's not the quote at the heart of the World Economic Forum. That was at the heart of Marx's philosophy. Everything that exists deserves to perish, literally quoting a literary representation of Satan uh, as his kind of guidebook. Ruthless criticism of everything that exists is what he framed it as, or in Marcuse's words, negative thinking, which he said, uh, in essence, becomes positive because it frees up the divine world or the, the ideal society from the mundane society that it's contained within. And that's in the essence liberation of society. But here at the beginning of the 2010 World Economic Forum book called The World Economic Forum, The First 40 Years, there's a long quote attributed to Goethe that's actually the quote from Goethe's translator, uh, where he's added some stuff to something that's m slightly mistranslated from Goethe's original. But this is the, the ethos. This is the, what they're calling upon. These are the values that Rick Warren in cahoots with the World Economic Forum has committed to that he wants to uh, communicate, what he, that he wants to, to teach through faith and through education, tied back into this Friday stuff. And what it says, this is a quote, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffective concerning all acts of initiative and creation. There's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings, and material assistance 
which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can. Begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. I'm not shitting you. That's the actual motivational commitment quote behind the World Economic Forum. Saying that when you commit to a bold action, providence moves to make it work for you. Literal freaking magic. The magic recreation of the system that Friday's saying, truly liberating education can only be put into practice outside the ordinary system. You have to have the whole system change in order to truly do the thing. The magical recreation of the system occurs by the prophetic act of moving to recreate the system in the first place. It proceeds by denouncing the existing world to announce a potential but unknowable world, that's what Friday teaches us, and all sorts of things, according to this misattributed quote of Goethe, who, remember, this is probably misattributed to Satan's mouth, all sorts of things occur to help one that would have never otherwise occurred the moment you commit to bold action. So whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius power and magic in it. Begin it now. You can hear Satan whispering in your shoulder, right? You can you can hear that. Um, so the, for Friday, this this you begin by denouncing with constant with consciousness the existing world to announce a new potential but unknowable world. You learn to speak the you the point of education in church is to learn to speak the word to proclaim the world, and providence will ensure that it comes into being. The existing world has to fall away, has to be denounced, because, quoting Goethe through Mephistopheles, or quoting Mephistopheles, I say, should say, as written by Goethe, because everything that exists deserves to perish. So the rest of this chapter gets even, believe it or not, more religious. So it's all about the church and religion. So we're going to cut this off here. This closes this episode. This closes the educational aspect in specific of this exploration, long exploration of the politics of education by Paulo Freire, published in um, 2000, or sorry, 1985, uh, that changed the shape of our educational system forever thereafter. Thank you for bearing with it. I know that I'm going to do one more on this book, and then we're probably still going to... The Brazilians have convinced me I have to go through Pedagogy of the Oppressed, even though it's horrifically boring at this point um, to go through more Friday. Uh, But we will um, wrap this up. I'm glad you've slogged through it with me. I hope you understand. I hope that tying it to the World Economic Forum in this way has made it clarifying. I hope you understand the school choice trap, because I'm really worried not only about that, but about having even said that. I'm not that scared of the woke, but I'm really kind of scared of the school choice people, Um, frankly, which is a scary enough statement. But I hope you'll think about these things, and I hope you will consider them for yourself. I hope you'll do the reading that you need to do to flesh that out, and that you will understand these issues clearly enough to be able to speak up about them. Uh, and make clear advice, ask the right questions, and hopefully lead us out of the trap that they're trying to set for us that they think they've laid so cunningly that they think Providence is moving to help them with, which I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, My friend, you all will know my friend Michael O'Fallon, told me a year, year and a half ago that he prays every morning, very religious man himself, he prays every morning that he says, he prays, Lord, may my enemies stumble today. And I think, I think that prayer has been answered a bunch of times. Um, but at any rate, 
I hope you will consider these ideas seriously because they are very serious, and I hope I've shed some light on them. I'm so happy. I know I've got one more with this damn book, but I'm so happy to be moving on from this book finally, and we will talk more on the podcast as we go. Uh, all the best. <laughs>